You're listening to Viewpoints on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Welcome to the show. This, of course, is where we talk about the week's big stories, and there was plenty to debate this week. As a matter of fact, we uh, got a little fractious on some of the uh, roundtables on More in the Morning. On this particular roundtable, Mark Tui is here, former chief of staff to the mayor of Toronto. Michael Corrin, writer and broadcaster. Michelle Morrow, a finalist in the People's Voice Awards and a woman who's set to bring her second child into the world, possibly during this show. <laughs> Let's hope not. I didn't bring a second pair of pants. Okay. Let's start with a more serious story. And you know what? I don't want to necessarily frame the discussion about the Marco Mozo case uh, with any questions to you, because there's so many different takeaways from this. I'm, I'm curious what, you know, what has dominated your thinking about it? Because some people see it as, you know, the spoiled rich kid who got bail and he shouldn't have gotten bail. Others see the, you know, well, he's uh, he stayed behind bars so he can get double credit, uh, you know, and then others are just approaching this as a terrible, terrible tragedy and a family in mourning. And Jen, it, it doesn't get more real than the mother of those three little children and the daughter of the man who died in that car accident, Jennifer Neville Lake. I was always afraid to call him what he is, a drunk driver, but now I can say that and I don't have to be afraid to say that anymore. A drunk driver killed my family and he admitted to it. Uh, again, Michelle, I'll start with you because mm -hmm. I guess as a mom, uh, that's probably where your mind and your heart goes first. I can't even imagine what she's feeling and how she's going, what she's going through. There's been a lot of discussion among people I know about how open she is in the media and some people believe it. it is a little off-putting. But at the same time, if this is a way you can feel as though you're keeping the memory of your children and your family alive, who am I to say stop talking? Who am I to say don't talk about something that you're going through? They say that's one of the best things you can do for someone who has PTSD or has been through a traumatic experience is let them talk about it as much as they want. And, of course, that's the, the surviving victim, Mark Tui, and we have Marco Muzo, the guy who finally said the words guilty this week in a courtroom. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a horrible tragedy, and, and horrible tragedies happen in our society from time to time. Uh, in this case, to be honest, I think this is one where everything in the system has worked the way we would hope it always works, even to the point that this... Uh, uh, the uh, perpetrator, Muzo, who, who did something heinous, but he has since behaved exactly the way we would want a, uh, uh, somebody who's done something wrong to behave in terms of owning up to it, whether that's a tactic or just honest sort of feelings. It doesn't really matter. I couldn't ask him to do much more than that. What I fear, though, is that we'll try to draw lessons from this, and frankly, I'm not sure that there are lessons except that horrible things sometimes happen to very nice people. Right. So you mean that we've reached some sort of a threshold below which we'll never fall in terms of people driving drunk? I, I think so. I, I, I listened to representatives from Mad Canada saying, well, we've got to do more. We've got, no, we don't have to do more. I mean, there is no way under any regime that you can prevent 100% of anything. Um, and I think this was a terrible tragedy. Could they have done something better that day in the specific? Maybe. Uh, is it worth pouring zillions of more resources to move the bar from, you know, preventing 80% or 90% to 91%? I, I don't think so, to be honest. I think we're pretty close to having it right. Michael Corn. Uh, great wisdom in both of those responses, because I have to say, in all honesty, in all candor, I did react badly when I saw the mother of, of these poor children on TV so often, but then after sober second thought, if that's what she needs to do, who the hell am I to in any way even have an opinion on that, and so yeah. not to criticise it. I think that may be a generational thing, though, because I know be. a lot of people 
can't understand why she's putting that grief on public display. And I know young people get up in the morning, the first thing they do is put whatever's going on in their lives out there. Interesting. Yes, so I think that, that's probably true. Now, now, whether that's admirable or not for those people, I, I don't know. Look, I mean, there, there's some juxtapositions here that are so glaring. A guy arrives on, on his family's private plane and he gets drunk and he... But Mark is exactly right. Um, hysteria is not the appropriate reaction. My, my only problem... Now, I think he was told exactly how to behave and what to do. So I'm not going to give him much personal credit for this. However, the chances are he will be free in about five years. Uh, if he gets ten years or something... Um, I'm, I'm not one of these, you know, flog him, uh, execute... I, 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 but there has to be a civilised societal revenge for a terrible crime, and he's not going to serve that long in prison. Uh, what, whatever his background, people need to be punished. Yeah. Although, Mark, I always find it interesting the way people who've never been in a jail have very strong views about what the difference between five years and eight years might be. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I've, uh, when I was in the Army, one of my tasks is, uh, in my last job was to prepare contingency plans for federal prisons to do security uh, with the Army. And so I've been in every federal prison west of Quebec. Some of them are great. Some of them are not. There's not one of them that I would want to be either a guard working in or a, an inmate incarcerated in because it's just a horrific uh, lifestyle. But I, I think that we often underpunish our criminals in Canada, particularly. But I will also say there's no extent of punishment that's going to prevent the crime. I mean, we used to here in this country and in the States, they still put people to death for murder. Murder still happens. So the idea that the punishment is necessarily going to completely obliterate the offense, it doesn't make no, sense. No, it doesn't obliterate, but this is one of the relatively few examples where it might actually make people think... I'll spend that much time in prison. I used to be on the Board of Prison Fellowship. I don't have your experience, but I was on the Board of Prison Fellowship in this country, and I do know a bit about prison life. And, and look, it's not meant to be fun. I mean, I haven't seen it as being as appalling, as you would say, in some of the more modern prisons. I mean, it, it depends. I couldn't take it. I couldn't take prison. Uh, but there are people who, frankly, it's, it, it, it's part of what they do. Yeah. They expect every few years to go to prison for, for their profession. Although it's not prison that prevents me from drunk driving. It's, exactly. Right. I it's, think that's... Yeah. living with killing four people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I don't think no matter how high or how much in this case Muzo is uh, punished, it will stop anyone. I don't think when you're in that state of mind, when you're that intoxicated that you think, oh, God, if I drive, then I'm going to go to jail. I think it's no, I got to get home and I don't want to get pulled over by the cops. It's not something that's going to stick with them. Another dramatic trial this week, uh, Jean Gomeshi trial. Uh, two women. There are three women who are being you know, have presented themselves as witnesses and will front this case. And two of them have been on the stand. And both of them, I won't say they've been torn apart, uh, but Michael Corrin, certainly, I've never been in a courtroom. There was a gasp moment. There have been three or four of those moments with Marie Hennon, the defense mm -hmm. attorney, pulling out emails, photographs, uh, the, the whole business of the car. Well, he didn't even own that car at the time. Uh, on Thursday, going into Friday, Marie Hennon, the defense attorney, saying, but sh are you going to tell the truth to his honor? And then mm. she sits down because that's the end of her questioning for the day. This is, I mean, it's a crazy, crazy trial. Look, I, I've never uh, been in charge with any sort of offense, but I've, I've been sued a couple of times. When you're sued, you go through discovery. And the first thing, and I'm sure we, we all know this, the, 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 your lawyer will say, I'm on your side. You just have to tell me everything. Do not 
hang me out to dry. Make sure I know everything. Well, either th these young women, their memories are terrible or they've lied, because this is not that difficult. This is not some brilliant jurist who's, who's, who's managed to find a way through the system. She's simply done her research, or she hasn't. She's had people doing the research. You go through email records, you go through photographs, and time after time it shows that after the event they appear to have been amicable, if not amorous, towards the person who apparently attacked them and abused them. Now, they're trying to get around that by saying, well, maybe I was trying to entrap him or doing this or doing that. And other people are saying, well, trauma was involved. But it doesn't look at all good. And um, I don't know enough about the legal requirements to convict, but as a layman, it sounds to me as though the prosecution, unless they have something else in store, are struggling at this point. Michelle, um, Christy Blatchford's been covering the trial, and when she was reporting on Lucy de Couture saying that she stayed for an hour after uh, she'd been allegedly beaten, uh, that she spent the weekend with Gian Gomeshi, uh, Christy said she could buy what... Lucy was saying, because a lot of women have had this impression, well, you know, I, I, I have to please people. I don't want to be rude. Same as when someone, a gentleman says to me on the street, oh, why aren't you smiling? You should be smiling. Who, who are you to say how I should look or how I should react? And I think that's sometimes the pressure that you feel, that I'm in this situation and your skin may be crawling, your heart may be racing, but how do I exit it? I hate to use the word politely, but how do I exit it politely without then uh, the person getting on the Internet and saying, oh, this this girl's a the B word or that sort of thing. And or a tease or, or yeah. exactly, exactly. And I going to, back to Michael's point, I think it's interesting that a lot of uh, witnesses for the prosecution don't have personal lawyers. So although the Crown may be very thorough in their extent of their research, they're not sitting down perhaps and asking the same questions as you would of a defendant. There's not someone who's like, this is my only trial that I'm focusing on right now. Let's go through everything. Let's well, focus on true. every Apparently, little thing. The, the, these lawyers are not exclusive, which has surprised me. No, some of them are duty counsel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, so, and they, they have a huge caseload. Mm -hmm. So they might not have the time to sit down and go through every little thing like you would if you were a defendant's lawyer. Uh, Mark, maybe it's pointless, really. I mean, we're week one of a three-week trial. Maybe this is like complaining that Phantom of the Opera isn't exciting until the chandelier comes down. Well, I, I think uh, Ms. Heenan, the, the lawyer for the defense, is playing the court of public opinion like a virtuoso. Uh, she knows exactly how to... She's very dramatic. Uh, she knows exactly how to pull the right strings to get the right media response, to get the right public sentiment. But I'm still 100% in the camp of the, of the victims. And I think most of the testimony that we've heard in the media is probably, and I'm not a lawyer, but probably irrelevant to the charges. And I would put it this way. If these women had been married to Gomeshi, would we even think twice that they had stayed with him after they were assaulted? And would we think lesser of the assault charge because of that? I don't think we would. We're all very familiar with the domestic abuse concept. These are women who had a, sort of a, an introductory casual relationship. But, but I know people who've been through this experience, and I know how hard it is to remember little details. When, when you're assaulted, that's what you remember. The details of the car that you then saw 15 times later and when you saw it 10 years later, yes. that's hard to remember sometimes until you sit down and actually have enough evidence to put around it to resequence it. I, just in writing my book about my time with Rob Ford, I found that going through there and figuring out 
exactly what sequence some things happened. I had to actually look at other evidence in yeah. order to get it because my first remembrance Mo was of the emotional impact, not of the specific, you know, I thought this person was in the room, well, but it turns out they weren't. Absolutely so. But the, the problem I have is the sending of, e of affectionate emails after the fact. Now, I speak as a middle-aged man, but I have raised <clears throat> two daughters. And... I just find it odd. I find it strange. And, I, you know, the, the language has to be very careful here because people have suffered terribly. But it just it, it seems odd to me that someone would... They would stay for a while, but then they would carry on sending emails. One of the... The one person who can be identified... I mean, I do know people who have interviewed her, and there is certainly an aggressive nature uh, and... Um, how shall I put this? Look, uh, viscerally... How am I reacting right now? I'm being totally honest with you, and maybe I'll be criticised for this. Um, um, she's not someone who I find an, an enormously attractive as a character. Uh, that doesn't justify anything. All I'm saying is, uh, will the judge take that into account? I don't know. The debate, the discussion, the week in review continues right after this. This is Viewpoints. A discussion of top news stories and the issues that affect you from Canada's biggest talk show hosts. In-depth radio, News Talk 1010. And the voices you're hearing this week, Michael Corrin, Mark Tui, and Michelle Morrow are on the panel. My name is John Moore. A uh, poll that was splashed across the front page of the Globe and Mail on Friday, folks, uh, said that uh, Canadians, by a margin of uh, 60%, think that... Um, human rights are more important than jobs. And what they were being asked about is the fact that we're selling some armored vehicles to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, all of a sudden, is not anybody's friend. The thing is, we're talking nine years of 3,000 people working per year on a $15 billion package. I'm not so sure if people were asked in those terms mm -hmm. that they would respond the same way. Michael Corrin? The question is everything, isn't it? The question pretty much defines the answer. Um, there's a lot to say about this, which countries do we sell to. By their very nature, countries that want to buy weapons of destruction generally have a certain attitude towards the world. You know, Costa Rica doesn't have an army and, and Switzerland doesn't buy too much. And, uh, but and we so have on. an army and we buy weapons of destruction. What well, does that we, say about us? Well, and we use them to destroy. Yeah. Uh, that's what I mean. Now, when it comes to Saudi Arabia, look, I, I do know the Middle East a little. And um, in terms of the regimes that exist there, I mean, Saudi Arabia is actually moving forward. I, I, I mean, things are I'm not going to pretend Saudi Arabia is a great place, but there's, there are actually signs of some progress. Although it was a head-rolling start to the year. Oh, it, I'm, there is still there is misogyny. Uh, minorities, Bangladeshis in particular, are treated like slaves. But... Syria, that was a place where there was religious uh, tolerance and it was relatively secular, has become a hellhole. The same goes for Iraq. Egypt's in disarray. Um, Saudi Arabia, there are at least some negotiations are taking place. If we say we don't sell to any regime, look, how and then do we sell to Israel? Now, Israel tends to export at this point, but I can tell you the boycott and divestment movement will say don't sell to Israel. All sorts of countries that we don't sell to. The question really has to be, do we simply stop manufacturing weapons of destruction? Because uh, we w there'll be very few countries, very few indeed, who will be allowed to sell yeah. to. Michelle, these jobs are all in Ontario. So that's 3,000 Ontarians for the next nine years with jobs. What's more important? It's a really tough call. My husband was out of work for almost a year, and it was really scary. And I can't imagine the stress that would put on a family to suddenly lose a job. There is, it's a fine line, I think, that you have to decide 
uh, personally. And so when it becomes this grand scale, I think it's really difficult to sort of put your own opinion in. Not to compare people to animals, but it's very open about the Canada goose jackets and how they use, how badly they trap the, the animals that they use for the fur and still people are buying them. So I think it has to be a personal decision. And when it becomes this this big of a thing... I, I don't know. I don't agree that with that we sell them to Saudi Arabia, but that's me. I'm also not in danger right now. I don't worry about my house being bombed. I don't worry about leaving the house and being attacked. So if I was in that situation, maybe I'd have a completely different opinion. Mark? I don't see any problem whatsoever with selling them to Saudi Arabia. I mean, we make them because... they're not we, so bad or we, you just don't care? They're not so bad. I mean, they're bad from our perspective, but our perspective isn't their perspective. And for us to be so arrogant that we think that our way of life and our values trump theirs... Uh, that's just the height of human arrogance. But uh, I'll also say that having lived in countries that are at war and countries that have been destroyed by war and countries that have been run by dictators, most people who live in those countries prefer stability over democracy. And uh, democracy is a hard thing to create, and it's not necessary. It's only the better political system. It's not the best political system. It's just there isn't another one that happens to be better than it at the moment, and I'm a big believer in it. But... When we push for democracy that's Western style on a country that, that isn't, anyway, I'm getting off track there. But these weapons, these vehicles are vehicles that we need. And in order for us to have an industry that can produce them, they have to sell them to more than just us. So we sell them yeah. to the United States, we sell them to Saudi Arabia, and I'd rather think that we have more influence at a discussion about how you treat your people yeah. with our allies than with our enemies. And if we don't, look, I mean, this are... People will cringe, and as they should, at the argument. But if we don't, someone else will. Now, I know we've all heard that, but it's also true. And I can tell you who will sell them. It will be China. I mean, China is now dominating so much in Africa, for example. Uh, there have been arming Zimbabwe, which has been committing some atrocities on, on its own people, and various other countries. And I think Mark, he's right. I don't agree with him. I think we can say our system is superior. I mean, Churchill said democracy is not perfect. It's the best of a bad bunch. But I do think we, we have certain values and virtues that we, we, we should, not may, that we should export. And we can do that, perhaps, by having a relationship with Saudi Arabia. They will buy the. They have lots of money. They will buy these things. It depends on who sells them. Is it us or someone else? I mentioned in the last segment the idea that there's a bit of a generational perspective on a lot of issues, and I think this one is one of them. An anti-poverty group says that some people are skimping on food and other household basics so they can afford Internet. So they're calling on the government to create a basic Internet package that would be available to poor people. Uh, Michelle, I'll start with you because you're the younger person on the panel. Uh, where I say it's generational... I think people over 40 think of the Internet as some kind of a frippery. Uh, Jerry Agar said, why can't you just go to the public library? Uh, I think kids who have grown up where they have tablets at the age of 18 Two months, or three. They get. This is like electricity and water now. Mm -hmm. I, this is really difficult for me because I completely disagree. I think um, you should... Internet should never come before food, should never come before shelter. Um, I don't agree with the government putting money into lay better cable in certain parts of Ontario simply so we have better internet. You made the decision to li live there. It, you, if you lived mm. in Toronto, you... Um, but if you lived in Toronto, you make the sacrifice of living in a condo. You don't get a backyard. You don't get a palatial home. You choose to live out of the city where you can have a huge yard and a huge house and Minimum perhaps wage, not as good of... You don't, make any, you don't have decisions if you don't have power or money. Absolutely, but then you should be making the decision that it's better for my child to be in a shelter uh, to be in a home as opposed to a shelter you could be in a shelter and afford internet or you could be in a house and use a library the but at the, uh, 
as strongly as I feel about that, I do also understand that there is a separation. It's harder to apply on in person for a job. You have to apply online usually. And it makes it a lot harder when you have to go to the library and or other free places to get internet. Yeah. But I would like to see the numbers on how many people are actually using the internet for that as opposed to Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat, something like that. Yeah, Mark, the comparison of going to the public library, uh, Scott Reed was on a panel. He said, well, why don't you just go to the local well for your water? Uh, yeah, I, hey, I was recently in a situation where I didn't have internet. You know, I left my job in the mayor's office, uh, some of you may recall, and, uh, <laughs> and I had no money for a year, basically. So, uh, yeah, I got rid of internet, I got rid of cable, I had to go to the library. I was shocked to find that libraries don't have newspapers, um, all of them. We have more libraries than newspapers, apparently. But uh, I've also spent some time working recently in Caledon, where the average person like you or me who has high-speed internet there, if they have it, 15% of people in Caledon have no access. It, at no price can they buy internet. It just doesn't exist. Really? But those who do have it are paying five or 600 bucks. This is not an issue about poverty. This is an issue about infrastructure, and that's how it should be addressed. In the 18th, in the 19th century, government invested in railways in this country. In the 20th century, we invested in highways. In the 21st century, we've got to lay fiber optic pipe. Okay, but we're going to have to call it there on this topic, actually, because uh, we're out of time in our segment. But when we come back, the one thing that caused the closest thing we've had to a fight in a long time on More in the Morning. Viewpoints continues on In-Depth Radio. News Talk 1010. Welcome back to the show. My name is John Moore. Mark Tui, former chief of staff to the mayor of Toronto, is here. And of course, you know, we keep on talking about former. He's now very active as a political strategist. Michael Corrin, who has a book coming out as a writer broadcaster. Michelle Morrow is a finalist in the People's Voice Awards. The thing that caused one of the biggest um, Donnie Brooks on our show in a long time on round one, it was a column by Joe Warmington where he said, just look at the numbers. We stopped carding. Crime, especially violent crime, went up. Ergo, it's the carding. We had Joe on the show to talk about it. As it turned out, there were four people on the panel, all of whom disagreed with him. He accused me of creating this kind of, you know, of everyone ganging up. I suggested maybe it's because it's a minority opinion. <laughs> uh, but, Mark, we often talk about security and policing issues with you, so I'll start with you. Um, he's right. You cannot rule it out. Questions must be asked. But my contention is always... The reason we stopped carding is because we moved beyond carding, which is basic intelligence gathering, into harassment. Yeah, and and you're absolutely right. He's right. You can't rule anything out. But I also stopped walking, watching Breaking Bad about the same time, and I'm not sure that had any oh, impact you finish it. on the on the amount of crime in Toronto. Uh, it's it's correlated, perhaps, but there's no causal <laughs> impact there. Uh, this is what I think happened. It was a horrible, no good, downright rotten week for the Toronto Police Service last week. And we were talking about nothing but their failures. I've argued for a long time, and I'll keep arguing, that there's a cultural cancer festering away there that's got to be cut out. Do you think the chief has to go? Uh, no, I think the chief has to start showing up. But uh, And if he doesn't, then he's got to go. But uh, I think that what happened was Mike McCormick, who's become the de facto spokesperson for the entire police service in the mm. absence of a chief, uh, he's a union president, and he's speaking to change the channel. And so this week, instead of talking about how bad his members are, we're talking about how everything went to pot the minute we stopped giving them what they wanted. 
and it's our fault, not theirs. I think the whole thing's a distraction tactic. Now, of course, Mark was on that particular panel, and he, Joe may have expected that since you're supposed to be a conservative that you were going to go to bat for him. That didn't happen. Maybe that's why he felt he was hung out. That could be. Yeah. Uh, Michelle, you were listening to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. It was an intense radio moment. <laughs> <laughs> that's how we like it. Mm -hmm. and, and and I did. I felt bad for Joe because he did feel like he was being personally attacked. And I think that's the hard thing is that you have to separate your beliefs from the uh, from the story and from the statistics. I don't know if I can do that personally. We just saw how fired up I got over the Internet. <laughs> but I do believe that you the way that it has been written with in, in regards to carding is I don't know whether we can still call it, call it that is that you are still allowed to talk to people. You are like the police are you're still allowed to talk to people. You just can't necessarily record names and stop people for no reason we we shouldn't have that ultimate right. power or to... talk to them when they do not want to talk exactly with you. they have the right to say no i swear word swear word i don't want to talk to you and then unfortunately the cop has to be okay i'll move on to the next person and see if they can help me then and yeah. i i wish that that was expressed more michael this week i told the story of where carding comes from and it dates back uh, a long long time ago where officers carried cards mm. and they just talked to people on the street you know officer would be on the danforth and he'd say hey so and so uh, yeah. what you up to and they say oh you're not much but he says how's your old friend back in uh, the beach oh yeah well he turned over a jewelry store anyway they'd write this down on a card it would go to headquarters and they put it on a barrel and sit there and turn it and say wait a second i see a connection here that is intelligence gathering yes. what carding became was hey black guy what are you doing here? Murdoch mistress. Um, who were the other two on the panel, by the way? Shelley Carroll and, and, and David Nichol as well. Yeah, I didn't know his voice. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, look, uh, how, do I, how do I put this? I, I'm, I'm very fond of Joe. Um, and He's got a big heart. Yeah, he, he does. But uh, context is everything, and there can be false logic. You know, Hitler really enjoyed... Uh, uh, Beaujolais, I like Beaujolais, thus I'm a Nazi. I mean, I'm and just, he was not a vegetarian. Uh, no. Get that out there. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, we, we, you can't draw conclusions uh, by one or two facts. You have to consider others. I have never met a young or even middle-aged now black man in this city who hasn't had some sort of experience with the police that was negative. Now, frequently they just say, yeah, you know, whatever, it wasn't that bad and I move on. But I'm not talking about one or two. I'm talking about people, everyone I know. Yet I, as a white guy, have never had that. What was said earlier, I think, was it Mark who said it? it it's not carding that was the issue. It was the exploitation, maybe you said it, of, of carding. And I've also met cops who have problems with it. Because they've said, look, we have to get intelligence, but this wasn't working, and it was breaking down a relationship with the community that we have to have a relationship with. Look, I can tell you, for example, in, in the UK, uh, British intelligence is doing rather well now because it's built up a very solid relationship with its Muslim community. French intelligence is doing appallingly badly because it has no relationship with its Muslim community. Now, let's be honest that there are issues within the black community involving crime that we have to deal with. Uh, we deal with that by having a relationship with a vast majority of, of people in the black community who don't want there to be any crime, carding what wasn't working. Sensationalism in journalism, and with all due respect, the Toronto Sun is, is, uh, does this, one or two people who do it in particular, uh, sensationalism is never effective in journalism. We, we, we don't have to be all cerebral about it. We don't have to write essays, but we have to consider everything that is relevant, not just one or two factors. And Mark, one of the big problems here now, and this is across the continent is police are maintaining publicly that they can't do their jobs anymore. You know, all this oversensitivity about racism, can't we shoot a few black guys? Uh, if that is the case, 
then it's the cops who are being negligent of their jobs, not the public who are oppressing the cops. Yeah, it's a big problem. It's a problem here in Toronto. What we have is the jobification of policing, and that's not a good thing. Policing used to be a vocation. It was a calling. It might have been a family tradition, but there was a time Mm -hmm. when joining the police force was an honorable thing, and you did it for the honor. You didn't get paid a lot, but you may have come from a fairly lowly station in life, but now you were respected, and you were part of the community. That's no longer the case, and it's the police behavior over many, many years, not any fault of any individual policeman necessarily, but that's caused the problem, this idea that we heard from the Forsillo trial that uh, that his job in his mind was to go home at six o'clock in time yeah. for supper every day come what may and take charge and the authoritarianism I think is a bigger problem than racism. But, the idea that they always have to be in charge and you always have to obey yes. and the punishment for disobedience is death. That's but, a problem. But I, I do think I, I was watching the, the, um, the, the new generation that were being sworn in yesterday I think we've, we've gone through a bad generation of cops. I get that feeling. I believe we're coming out of that. I think some of the younger people, very ethnically diverse, by the way, at least the ones I saw interviewed, it was quite yeah. inspiring. I think maybe we've turned a corner. Okay. Now, I don't want cops listening right now in the cruisers to think that you've just said every cop between 25 and 50 is Certainly a bad cop. Certainly not. I mean, these are my <laughs> closest friends, and they're great guys, But I mean, and they're the first ones who would say, and as Mark referred to, there are guys who seem to have this, this authority issue. You will do what you're told. Command and control, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's it's authoritarianism, I think, more than racism, and so I'm not necessarily no, you ins- see black inspired doing that yeah. an ethnically diverse police force is going to be less susceptible to this. But I think what we need to do as citizens of Toronto is stand up and help that 90% of our police officers who are great get rid of the whatever small percentage is not great. And it starts at the top with leadership, and we need to see that from Chief Saunders soon. How do we feel about the new Toronto Maple Leafs logo? I like it. And frankly, Michelle, I don't see a butt in it. I don't see a butt either. (laughs) I thought that was a great quote. (laughs) uh, My family has quite a few of the older style jerseys, so when it came out, I was a little bit disappointed because I thought this just looks like an older jersey, which is nice to have the throwback. And I saw the quote about how there's 31 points to deal with 31 and something with Harold Ballard. 13 cups and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like it's a money grab again. Like, (laughs) let's get new jerseys so everyone has to buy the new stuff. Why? Getting a new jersey does not change the fact that we have a horrible hockey team and have had a horrible hockey team for this long. Why do we keep on dressing up an old horse as opposed to getting a new horse? But Mark, maybe they're just going to feel better in the new logos. Well, there's something to be said for that. I mean, what you wear has an impact on on your attitude, but they could wear a wet paper bag, uh, for all I care, as long as they can get them working as a team. And this is kind of symptomatic of, I think, the Maple Leaf uh, Sports and Entertainment. They're brilliant business people and marketing people. If they could only get a bunch of players on the ice at the same time to work together, yeah. that would be fun to watch. Well, that's certainly what they used to say back in the day when teachers owned them, is they uh, they could deliver shareholder value, Michael. Mm. The only issue that's in any way relevant is that Tottenham are third in the Premiership. It's the best season they've had <laughs> and since what I was a child. <laughs> and, and, and the jersey, but this is the thing, the jersey they have this year that has a diagonal blue stripe across, when they, they adopted it, I thought, oh, you're kidding me, that's the worst one in 20 years. And they're having their best season in my lifetime. But they've had it for 20 years. No, no, no. They no, change no, it every no, two, don't they? Every two years they change oh, it. The Vancouver Canucks were, I think, last in the Stanley Cup Finals the year they had the worst-looking jerseys in the history of hockey. Maybe there's something to this. Folks, we have to take a break, but when we come back, the guy who they say is pro-rape. This is Viewpoints, a discussion of top news stories and the issues that affect you from Canada's biggest talk show hosts, In-Depth Radio, 
News Talk 1010. Welcome back. It's the final segment, which we can try and lighten up during the final segment. We'll see what happens. I got some tape that's going to make your heart sore, though. Let me first remind you that you're listening to the voices of Mark Tui, Michelle Morrow, Michael Corrin. My name is John Moore. And uh, young Mike Catherwood, let's load up that wonderful baseball play for, you know, I was not watching baseball up until the Jays started to win. So I have that in common with a lot of Torontonians. And then I watched this one game, which you knew in the seventh inning was historic. It was insane what was going on. And this moment capped the whole thing. Jose Bautista steps up, does what he does, knocks the thing out of the park, pitches his bat into the air, runs the bases, changes the course of the game, arguably one of the two most important plays in the history of the Toronto Blue Jays. Now the question is, can we afford to keep the guy? Michelle, I'll start with you. Um, Jose Bautista says he would like to be a Jay for life. He's 35 years old, so we're buying into a guy who's going to play into his retirement, but it seems he's at the top of his game. Can Why we not? afford it, though? Yes, yes. That The bat-flipping moment for me is like the Joe Carter moment for this generation because I can still see the Joe Carter with the World Series. I can still see that. And so, yes, absolutely. He's a good player. He wants to stay here. Let's keep him. Yeah, and, and I guess, he brings he gets people in. Well, that's the thing. Mark, it reaches beyond is, you know, is he a good player? There are certain players in every sports franchise who are part of your image, part of your brand. Yeah, yeah and, he, and when the Blue Jays brought in David Price last season... That was a turning point. It cost them a lot of money, but they filled the seats in that stadium the way they haven't been filled since before the baseball strike back before half the audience was born. And uh, <laughs> it uh, and they made money on that deal. They have no salary cap. Jose Batista is an icon on the Blue Jays now for this generation. People will go to watch him. And Mark Shapiro has to make sure that he is on side with the city because his initial moves have not been... Uh, friend making in the in the fan base because he came in and he tore apart a team. Uh, well, he didn't tear apart, but he allowed David Price to go. He allowed a bunch of people to go because they were expensive. Well, you know what? He has an unlimited bag of money if they mm. fill those seats and sell those hats. I bought two of them. For yes. Pizza. So uh, yeah, keep Jose. Uh, you, we can afford him. We can't afford not to have him. Okay, mm -hmm. Michael, you're not allowed to talk about football. Soccer. Right. Okay. <laughs> can I just ask, Boo? Um, now, they put though, a diagonal stripe on the uniform. <laughs> even though I've only Canada 28 years, I've never heard Shapiro pronounce Shapiro, except in this fellow's case. Is I that... don't care. Believe me, I take texts every single time. People saying, I'm Jewish. Why don't you get this name right? And I, I always say it's pronounced Thibodeau. <laughs> yeah. he, I mean, this is how he pronounces his That's name. That's how he I, pronounces I've never it, heard so. it before. Yeah. Um, Sport was supposed to be, one person referred to the working man's ballet, um, but it was meant to be a connection between ordinary people, if you like, and, and, and the public sphere. And I do deeply regret the fact that sports figures are paid so much money. However, um, owners have so much money. And, yeah, we should have them because, as you say, it, it's more than just the ability of a player. And we're still talking about a high-quality player. It's a symbolism. It's a symbolism of someone who... There's a lot of... Look... Um, so many of the people who play for Toronto have no law. I mean, they, they barely live here at all. They'll be a token Canadian. But there are others who really understand this country and grow to love it and identify with it. And so this is someone who... It would make a huge difference. It would also, in terms of self-interest, make the ownership of this team suddenly very, very popular with, with hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in this, in this country. I think Mooney Kawasaki is another example of that. <clears throat> yeah. Because yeah. he... Fans loved him from the start, and I mentioned him to my husband, who's a big baseball fan, and he actually went through and was like, 
like, no, but he's a good player because of this and this and this, and you can depend on him for this. And I think a lot of people don't realize he's j- how good of a player he, he is. People just see him as someone that they love and they love to watch and someone yeah. who's excited to be on the field. Uh, Canadian mayors this week on Twitter called out a guy named Roosh V who was either coming to Canada or there were just going to be events in his honor. And I should set this thing up. He's always called uh, pro-rape. Uh, which may be a little over the top, but he's definitely one of those guys who challenges modern feminism, who challenges the notion that a husband could rape his wife. Uh, His pro-rape ideas were uh, from a column, which he says is satirical, where he said uh, rape should never apply on private property. You know, uh, that's him. So, I mean, he's an absolute jerk. But, But... you know, should we be gracing him with re- replies from mayors and uh, ganging up in, in order to keep him out of the country, Michael? No, no, we shouldn't. Um, I saw a photograph, I think, what, was it on Friday, I think it was, that he, did he live in his mum's basement? He does. We learned that this week. I mean, which I think is, is just so wonderfully no he ironic. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, we, we shouldn't. He is someone who, I don't believe him when he says he's not, I mean, it, it, he might not be pro-rape as such, but he's pro-barbarism. And I think he should be despised, but no more than that. And we are being a little bit dishonest here because there are issues of rape culture. And uh, my, my, my daughter works in Europe with migrants and has very strong feelings that we, we should really understand that the most people who are coming into Europe um, actually have great respect for women and so on. However, there are within certain emerging cultures in North America issues of the treatment of women. We have to be brave enough to talk about that without uh, risking we're going to be accused of things. This guy is irrelevant. We've made him relevant. We, we've made this man relevant. We've given oxygen to someone who should, have be, who should have been denied it and thus would have been ignored. Michelle? I think it's difficult because he, since, since that story came out, he has cancelled uh, the big meeting that was supposed to happen on February 6th. Um, so on one hand, great that the pressure came out and sort of they were exposed for who they are. But at the same time, now when things go underground, we aren't able to monitor them as much. So it's that fine line I think we have to walk between giving too much exposure that they would drive them underground and yet ignoring it and letting it blossom. Yeah, And it plays to his narrative, Mark, that he's the victim. That in Toronto, for example, a female boxing club was going to turn up at the meeting and just stand around with boxing gloves. And in his mind, you know, oh, imagine the, if the gender roles were reversed if a bunch of men with boxing gloves arrived at a feminist rally. I just, this victimization of <laughs> straight, white, Christian men in the States is starting to get to me. How do you know he's Christian? Well, well, that's, that's just the narrative these days, though, <laughs> yeah, that that's the, know, the ultimate victim. And, and they can be victimized. But this guy is just doing this for his ego. And I just don't want to even talk about him. Okay. It's a power trip. Let's talk about Phoenix City Council. Because a lot of people will complain that this sort of activism is making us less American or less Canadian. But in Phoenix, they used to say a Christian prayer. Then they decided to be more inclusive. So they started saying uh, Muslim prayers, Jewish prayers, Seventh-day Adventist prayers. And then finally a group of Satanists said, well, you're going to have to do Satan prayers. And now they've decided to have a minute of silence. Mark, you were actually in the mayor's office. Uh, you were telling us on Friday that you sing the national anthem and have a bit of quiet, but there ha- there's no prayer at City I thought you were to say, Mark, you were a Satanist. <laughs> yeah, well, that too. Could be. But, uh, we don't suffer for punishment, perhaps. <laughs> I'm a fallen Satanist. <laughs> but, uh, which, you know, makes you wonder where I fell too. But, uh, yeah, Toronto City Council doesn't have a prayer at the beginning. It has, uh, it, it starts with the uh, national anthem. Some people sing, some people don't. I was in the army, soldiers never sing. Uh, so they, they just pray? stand there. Uh, yeah, depending, t- they, but they pray privately. They, they pray Even with at the mass dinner? 
Uh, no, that's well. That's there's a. It's a very brief grace, which is usually about as long as for the food we're about to give. Thank God. Mm-hmm. And, and there's that's a toast to the Queen and a toast yeah. to the yeah. fallen. And uh, and regimental. There's a whole bunch. And then of there's the protocol. Saturday toast to our wives that's and girlfriends. Navy. May yeah. they never meet. And my favorite one though is uh, to a bloody battle in a sickly season because you want to get promoted. What about across the? Uh, do, do they do it in Canada across the border? I mean, Scottish the, regiments will actually port? toast. Uh, no, the oh. across a bowl of of, uh, of alcohol, but it's meant to be the king over the water, the jacket. Ah, okay. Oh. Now every every regiment has its own traditions, yeah. and so it's fun to go to these dinners. But I don't think public prayer um, has a place in civic or any government. Quite frankly, I mean, I think that's a personal thing between you and your gods, mm-hmm. and uh, and you should find strength and conviction where you find it. I don't think it should be on show because I don't think it's supposed to be uh, a show-off thing. Michael, I, I made this comment uh, last week on, on one of the debates that I mean, it, it's sad that, that the Satanists are threatening to sue when in the old days they would have cast <laughs> spells, you know, and I've turned you into a newt. <laughs> Um, America is unique in this obsession with with prayer and patriotism, and I think this is relevant, that they have mingled the, the, the two in a very unsavory manner. So to be American is to be a Christian, and that's why they have so many problems. Um, prayer is central to my life, actually, and I value it very highly, and I don't like it when it's devalued. So to see people mouthing prayers they don't believe in or looking at their, their iPods or their watches during that time of prayer, no, say it privately before the prayer meeting, don't devalue it. Um, but don't have, there is no need for it at all. But let me play you some audio as we change to one last topic here. Uh, this week, to smash ratings and great reviews, The People vs. O.J. Simpson debuted on FX in the United States. I spoke the morning after it debuted with Fred Goldman and Kim Goldman, the father and sister of Ron, who was one of the two murder victims. And they revealed that nobody ever contacted them, nobody ever asked them how, you know, if there was any sensitivity. They weren't even pre-screened the show. We weren't contacted by the producers or any of the actors. No contact whatsoever. They weren't obligated to do it. Frankly, it would have been a nice thing, the moral thing, the right thing to do is at least reach out. And Michelle, I guess what we forget is when we do true life entertainment stuff based on facts, at the core of that is there was there were two murders and two families. I yes, and I think it's uh, I think it's hard for some actors to sort of. Uh, recognize that they they want to separate uh, the character from the real person. They interviewed Jennifer Lawrence, and she talked about how in her movie Joy, it's loosely based on Joy, I don't remember her last name, who invented the Wonder Mop. And she actually didn't talk to her about a lot of the scenes that they included because she wanted to create the character as opposed to impersonate someone. So I can see why perhaps they didn't contact. And how awkward would it be to say, hey, your brother was killed. How do you feel about that? Or how can I steal this little intimate moment of your life to make my performance better? Although it might have been classier if at least the producers had sent it over two weeks ago, Mark. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly no legal obligation. I mean, it would be nice, perhaps, to give them an advanced copy of it or an advanced screening of it. Um, But a lot of other factors come into play just from my own experience with the book that I wrote. And, you know, I had planned to give copies of it to the people that were involved in it ahead of time or right at publication date. But frankly, we didn't have enough copies of them, so that didn't happen. And uh, I didn't really consult with a whole lot of people as I was writing it because I didn't want to to prejudice the story based on one person's perception over another. So I, I feel for the producers, um, it's not something that I'll be watching on television. I watched the original series with yeah. the original cast, and uh, it was uh, something to watch then. 
Thank you all very much. It's uh, been a great hour, and my thanks to Mark Tui, Michelle Morrow, Michael Corrin. Uh, Mike Catherwood was doing all the work behind the scenes, and Jesse Lorraine and Becky Coles work on the topics. My name is John Moore. Thanks for listening, and I hope we'll talk again soon.